Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Vegan Proteins, Muscles by Brussels Radio. My name is Giacomo. And I'm Danny. And this is our 12th episode. So it's been a real busy couple of weeks for us over here at the Vegan Proteins office. I mean, not that we're not usually busy because we're usually very, very busy, but now we're very, very, very busy. Um, this is the time of the year that we focus on Team Plant Built, which is a team of vegan strength athletes that Giacomo and I founded in 2011. 2012, I think. The end of 2011. Yeah. No, you're right. Well, we talked about it in the, in the end of 2011. Right. And then we started it at the, in fall of 2012. Right. Um, so this year is a pretty big year for us because we have athletes from all over the world. The United States, we have a bunch of athletes from there. Canada, New Zealand, Germany, and Australia. And we are now competing in bodybuilding, CrossFit, powerlifting, and kettlebell sport. And we get together once a year. This year we're going to the Naturally Fit Super Show in Austin, Texas again. And we compete against other people, generally non-vegans, although there are some other vegans that come out just to compete alongside of us. Um, but we compete against mostly non-vegan people and we usually do very, very well. And it, it really does a great job of sort of helping to smash the myth that vegans are, are weak and scrawny and just spread awareness about things that are possible on a fully vegan diet. Exactly. And, you know, the, the hope is that by having so many of us uniting together, that with that strength in numbers, there's really no disputing what we're doing. I mean, you can see one person performing really well, outperforming the competition. You can you can say pretty much anything to discredit that individual or just even just say they got lucky. But if you see a whole team of, what are we now, 45 people? Ish, yeah. Ish, roughly, that are actively competing as a unit, you see 45 people come swarm in and take home a large percentage of the trophies. I mean, there's there's really no taking away from that. So, I mean, obviously Giacomo and I are both preparing for that as athletes, but in addition, there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I'm sure you can imagine it's not easy to coordinate, you know, 45 athletes all over the world, get them all together, figure out, you know, how we can promote it once we're together, because it's a pretty short time that you have to, you know, get the message out as far as you can. So there's a lot that goes on with, uh, you know, organizing and promoting and things like that. So it's been pretty busy behind the scenes over here. So right now we're in the middle of a fundraiser to raise money both to cover the costs of, you know, the overhead of running a team like this, things like accounting and bookkeeping and keeping the website up and running, but also to help cover some of the costs of the international athletes' flights because they are very, very expensive to get them here. Um, we're not able to cover the entire flight, but part of it is going to go towards that. And also, a large portion of the money we raise past a certain point is going to go back to farm sanctuaries and vegan outreach groups. Last year, we were able to donate $12,000 to three farm sanctuaries and one vegan outreach group all over the world. And that was really, really cool. But the, the coolest thing about the fundraiser... Um, is that we're able to give back a lot of fun things to the people who actually donate. The good thing is that we have a lot of awesome sponsors who believe in our cause and what we're doing, and they want to give back to you as a thank you for your support. And we also give back as well 
I mean, for example, the the most popular uh, package is the hundred dollar donation level, where you get a shirt and a hoodie with a limited edition gold print. You know, there's a a cookbook, a training book, their ebooks, a CD, a workout mix with our favorite songs. Each teammate contributes something, so you get to share in the in the experience with us, which is pretty awesome. Wristbands, sticker, earbuds, retractable earbuds. Am I missing anything here? The calendar. That's right. There's a calendar from you know that we we make during the meetup, and then afterwards we we give that out for for the following year. And then we just found out today as well that Plant Fusion has decided to give a one pound tub of Plant Fusion to everybody who donates at the hundred dollar level or more. So if you get a chance, just check out the fundraiser. Um, if you can't donate, we totally understand. But if you could share it or spread the word or however it is you'd like to support, we would really, really appreciate it. The website is igg.me forward slash at forward slash plant built. So thank you so much for your support there. And now we have a, a really cool episode today, one that I've been looking forward to doing for a very, very long time now. So today is our 12th episode, and it's called Do You Even Science? Uh, which is a, a take from our coach, Dr. Lane Norton. It's one of his slogans, which I really, really love, you know, because he's sort of, that he takes the scientific approach to everything, and that's sort of what he's known for, which is why I love him so much. And it's just sort of a play on like the, the bro-y, do you even lift, but it's do you even science. And, and we do science, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about pseudoscience and the health and vegan and fitness communities and how you can sort of arm yourself against it. So this is something that I see as a big problem, particularly for vegans, because there's so many, you know, vegan gurus out there sort of saying things that don't make any sense and don't have any sort of scientific claim behind them at all. And, you know, that's all well and good if it helps somebody else to feel better or what have you. But ultimately, it makes veganism look kind of silly and like we don't have a leg to stand on. And the other thing is sometimes it winds up hurting people. That is very true. There's a lot of really piss poor advice out there uh, that, you know, people who don't know any better, like we mentioned in the eating disorders episode, when you don't know any better when you walk into veganism, you're a lot more susceptible to a lot of these claims that are out there. So this is something I started to notice a while back. I mean, I've noticed it for many years, but it seems like as the internet and social media grows, it seems to be getting worse and worse. So it really, really bothers me, especially as a coach. A lot of times I end up cleaning up these messes that, you know, other people have left behind from trying to follow these crazy things. And we just wanted to bring some of it into light and help people learn how to arm themselves against these wacky claims that you can find. I mean, you can easily find them all over the Internet, all over, you know, a lot of vegan inspiration pages, things like that. And obviously it runs rampant in the health community as well. But since people are already looking for a reason to point fingers at vegans for their stupid diets, (laughs) it's probably better to, you know, nip these things in the bud. And the more you know. It can can be pretty crazy because you can take an exaggerated claim that someone is talking about, which might not hurt somebody. And then all of a sudden other people have an even more exaggerated claim about whatever it is that they're they're they read so yeah it's like a game of telephone yeah basically and somebody who i noticed a a while back who started sort of um doing a great job explaining this to people is anastasia zinchenko 
And I started seeing her in different forums and stuff online. And she would always step up and say like, well, this isn't really true. And here's why. And she would provide all this scientific data. And the more I checked out Anastasia, she's a scientist. This this is what she does. This is what she does all day, every day. She focuses on science. She's also vegan, obviously. And she's a bodybuilder in the figure category and a power lifter. So she's no... She's no bullshit. She's not just a white coat in a lab. She also is able to apply these things in real life. So we were able, we were very fortunate to get an interview with Anastasia all the way in England. So we had to sync up our schedules a little bit and we were able to talk to her on Skype. So here's our interview with Anastasia. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do and how long you've been vegan and all that jazz? Okay, so I will just start maybe at the him. I'm vegan powerlifter and bodybuilder. At the moment, I'm mostly powerlifter. I started lifting two and a half years ago. Seriously lifting one and a half years. It took me probably like one year to realize that I should stop doing so much cardio and start adding more weights because it's much more fun. Mm -hmm. I've done cardio before for my entire life. So it was uh, swimming, cycling, running, I had a lot of stuff and then, you know, Two years ago, I fell in love with weights. And uh, yeah, one and a half years ago, I switched to the real weightlifting guys with big, big guys mm -hmm. and started powerlifting. And that's also when I've seen how my body changes, how, you know, uh, also how encouraging it is to get stronger. Mm -hmm. So I actually started uh, lifting and became vegan at the same time. So all my muscle actually plant built. If nice. this is a question often people want to know, do you know someone who has built all the strength and all the muscle on a plant-based diet? Exactly. So, yes, definitely. And before I was, uh, I became vegan, I, I stopped actually eating meat when I was 15, so like 12 and a half years before. Mm -hmm. So like most of my like, muscles and, and strengths were built completely on a plant-based diet. Right. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, so my scientific background, I, I'm a scientist, I have a diploma in chemistry, diploma is a German five-year degree that combines bachelor's and master's, uh, during my bachelor's I've done mostly general chemistry, things like organic chemistry, when you can compare it maybe to Breaking Bad, synthesizing yeah. drugs most of the time. But just not illegal drugs, but uh, drugs that uh, potential drugs to, to be used for medical research. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, then in the last few years, I focused on life sciences, chemistry for life sciences. And at the end of my study, I've done research at Caltech and lived for over half, half a year in LA, which was really great. And after I graduated, I moved to Cambridge and started my PhD in biochemistry. Cambridge in England. In, in, England, okay. exactly. Because <laughs> we live about 40 minutes in Cambridge and Boston, right? Like, wait, we're neighbors? <laughs> Just clarifying. Right. <laughs> yeah, I actually sent a postcard from the Cambridge in Boston to the lab in Cambridge in UK. That's cool. <laughs> yes, and uh, now my project, I do my PhD in biochemistry, but my project is more about engineering. I develop new methods, new techniques, new essays for other scientists to use. I try to make the work of other scientists more user-friendly, faster, and cheaper. I miniaturize mi all the reactions. For example, I do like tiny, tiny droplets and try to 
using those reaction compartments instead of test tubes. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine a drop of water, I can split it in 10 million tiny droplets and do another reaction in each droplet. Wow. So it saves also lots of time and money for reagents. Oh, yeah. For so. all the chemicals and things like that. It saves yeah, so much so, uh, money. Yeah, exactly. And so I can actually also do 10 million droplets in one hour. Mm -hmm. It would take otherwise to do, and it would take me my entire PhD to do 10 millions of reactions. Right. That's really, really cool. So you teach other scientists how to be uh, more efficient scientists. So I do all the troubleshooting and all the mm -hmm. <laughs> things. Uh, yeah, the method is established and can be used by other scientists for analytical things or for new developments. So, you know, somebody has to develop the methods as well. Mm -hmm. So like everyone is using computers, but somebody has to develop the computers. Right. So right. that's actually what I do with uh, tools and essay developments for other scientists. Mm -hmm. That's very, very cool. So Anastasia is the perfect person to have on about this particular podcast. Um, I'm sure if anybody has been on the internet in the last five years, you've seen, you know, crazy claims that say like, eating dates will cure melanoma or something that you just read it and you're like, what? And then it, they talk about it like it's true. I mean, how many of these things have you seen? Oil pulling will give you shiny hair or just something crazy. Um, and there's no, there's no proof. There's no scientific anything behind it, but mm -hmm. people just believe it. It's like what you read on the internet. For some reason, people just seem to think that it's true because it's on the internet. Yeah. Um, and I've seen Anastasia for the last, I don't know, probably like two years is two years ago. I'd say is like when I started to notice you online, kind of calling people out on the bullshit and being like, well, that's not, that doesn't really make sense. And, and she's very, very good at explaining it in a way much better than I ever could. So that's what we're going to be talking to Anastasia about today. So how did you realize that this was kind of a, I mean, it's a problem in the health community, but it's also a problem in the vegan community. And when did you start to pick up on that? It was just people started asking me different questions. For example, when I was um, in a Facebook group and uh, people realized that I'm a scientist and they started asking me questions and I started looking into scientific literature. Actually, I haven't realized that much that this was a problem because when I read something on the, on the internet that sounded like bullshit to me, it was like, okay, just, you know, it's bullshit. I, you know, I, I don't pay real attention to it. And then I realized, oh, other people do, so maybe I can kind of explain it to them and say, okay, it's not as good as it sounds or it's not as efficient. The interesting thing is that most things have somewhat of a truth behind them. For example, um, let's take something like um, chili peppers or hot peppers as fat burner. Mm -hmm. That's there a big were, one. There was, scientific research about it, and I'm sure if you Google it, ever, there will be lots of articles that say, yeah, it's more spicy food to your diet, and then you will burn more fat. Mm -hmm. uh, so, to some extent, it is true, and there is scientific research about, this, about it, but the question is, to what extent? Right. Actually, I've looked up a paper about it, and um, it seems like that adding spicy food to the diet may increase, uh, may decrease the calorie bar balance by 10 to 50 calories a day. Mm -hmm. 10 to 50 calories a day. That's like a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so it's maybe like, I don't know, one to five almonds. Mm -hmm, right. 
Yeah, and then the people who read it, then they wrote, oh, okay, I will just add some spicy food and maybe I can eat one more chocolate bar. Right, so it doesn't balance out. In the end, your calorie balance is higher. Also, it is like somehow true, but not to such a big extent as it is presented or even it's not mentioned. So the people just assume that, yeah, it uh, makes sense to eat spicy food and then they can eat whatever they want. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, we we own a vegan supplement shop. One of the things we hear all the time, I mean, all the time is, but isn't too much protein bad for your kidneys? I think that's one that we probably hear every single day. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, I wanted to write an article about it. How much plant protein is too much? Because I wanted to focus on plant protein as a vegan. And there aren't really many studies about it. So I had the problems that I couldn't find enough studies. So I focused on protein in general. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything that was really significant for healthy people. Of course, there are people with kidney disease or other health problems who shouldn't consume too much protein and they should consult a doctor and doctors should tell them what to eat. Those people shouldn't eat too much protein, but for a normal healthy individual, uh, too much protein might be not really beneficial, but it seems, or from all the research we have up to now, it seems not to be harmful either, especially if it comes to plant protein. Even the research that uh, says that too much protein is bad says you should uh, prefer plant protein sources. Mm-hmm. I have read that. And this, I mean, the, the study that this myth came from, I, I th- I'm thinking of one particular study. It seemed like the higher protein had an effect on uh, GFR in your kidneys, but then they decided that that wasn't actually harmful. It was just a change. Right? Is that, yeah. Am I understanding it's that correctly? It's interesting things uh, that the GFR is also increased in pregnant women. Mm-hmm. And pregnancy isn't considered as a risk factor for kidney disease. Mm-hmm. So the scientists are still discussing about it. But, uh, yeah, pregnant women, then, you know, pregnancy would be bad for the kidney either. But uh, there's no evidence as far as I know. And the thing with too much protein is, what are the protein sources? Most people who consume too much protein eat protein from uh, animal sources. Many of them aren't vegan, aren't or in general bodybuilders who just eat protein without lots of fat and uh, maybe like broccoli on the side. That are the people who eat maybe hamburgers or the junk food uh, eat from McDonald's. And then the question is: Is it too much protein or too much fat? Mm-hmm. Because most of the studies that uh, say that too much protein is bad also mentioned that it's also in combination with high-fat diet, high-animal-fat diet. Also, when you think about the thing that too much fat is not good, then the question is, is it too much animal fat or would it apply to plant fat as well, which probably isn't the case if your fat sources are nuts with fiber and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, also, another interesting question is, is it too much protein or not enough Veg- good stuff, not too much vegetables. Mm-hmm. If it's um, in general, uh, maybe adding good stuff to the diet would neutralize even the bad effects of uh, junk food. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, yes, yeah, I mentioned it's already protein source. There's some uh, evidence that suggests that plant protein sources uh, may be better than animal protein sources. Yeah, and in general, the lifestyle. 
People who eat too much protein, let's say in form of junk food, they aren't particularly healthy either. Probably they don't exercise enough, mm -hmm. they have lots of stress, they don't sleep enough, maybe they smoke and consume alcohol. Mm -hmm. And everything adds up. So there are so many different factors. So you can't really say it's just protein. Right. Right. There's so many different things to look at. I would, I would love to see a study specifically on plant protein, but I can't find anything either. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, some, hopefully we'll see that sometime in the next decade or so. Yeah. yeah actually, there was uh, also this one study that um, I think on the internet maybe one year ago it was everywhere. Like um, eating too much protein is as bad as uh, smoking. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I looked into the study. It was, uh, for, for me, it's a vegan, a really interesting study because they mentioned there straight away, I think in the abstract, that it doesn't apply for plant protein sources. Mm -hmm. So I was like really happy about it. <laughs> and uh, then I looked into methods and how they examined it. There's also something really important to look who was examined. Lots of the studies were performed in animals. So not in humans. Not, not, not in humans. Or some of them were even performed uh, just in, re uh, in relationships. So, and if that are animal studies, like there are big differences between humans and animals. Mm -hmm. So, animal models aren't just, uh, you know, n not really good because of ethical re reasons, but they aren't also really conclusive when it comes to humans. Right, because we're not rats. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Also, for example, for branching amino acids, mm -hmm. for supplementation, you, you hear about lots of studies. Most of them were performed, or like many of them were performed in rats, and there's actually research that shows that uh, branching amino acid metabolism differs among species. So you can, I take most of the studies as a guideline, but not as the ultimate proof, because you can't really prove anything. Exactly, and I think that you just said like one of the most important things that people... I feel like so many people could stand to benefit from understanding is, okay, so we believe in science and evidence-based theories, but it's important to know that even because a scientific study comes out, that does not mean it is the 100% absolute truth. Um, in the end, you sort of have to go with your own judgment and use that, just have that in the back of your mind, because tomorrow a study could come out to say the complete opposite. So Yeah, yeah actually, there's there an example about it. Uh, that comes across pretty often, that is, uh, that calorie restriction prolongs the lifespan. That there, there were a couple of studies that showed that calorie restriction made, uh, the studies were performed on animals, so made lab animals live longer. However, there was another study that showed that high carbohydrate, high calorie diet made animals live longer. Mm -hmm. I think that's for mice. And so there are like two completely opposites at the same time. So yeah, first of all, we aren't red. And the second thing is also, if you look at laboratory animals, they, what about the immune system? Mm -hmm. For example, if they don't eat enough, would they be as strong in the free environment as they are in sterile lab conditions? Mm -hmm. Right. So could they actually survive in the wild if they were weaker from not eating enough, yeah. basically? I wanted actually to uh, mention this uh, one um, study with uh, smoking, uh, too much protein is bad as smoking, mm -hmm. how they have done uh, their uh, kind of research or how they evaluated the data. Actually, the data was based on a single dietary recall. They had lots and lots of people, I think over 6,000 people, who filled out the questionnaire what they ate within 24 hours. And then the scientists looked 
who died in the next 18 years. Hmm. So actually the data was just based on a single day, day. for each person. Hmm. Right. And it's not really conclusive for the next 18 years. Yeah, no. <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, it was somebody's birthday or the person was too stressed and just ate bad food or maybe someone ate, wanted to be really healthy and ate good food this day. Mm-hmm. So it's... Uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, it, it, they had really large sample size. So they can say, okay, it's somehow statistically significant because we have taken so, so many people. But on the other hand, uh, you can't really expect that the people won't change their dietary habits in the next 18 years. Right. Yeah, a lot can happen in 18 years. Yeah, so th- they've chosen actually, uh, I think, individuals who weren't young anymore. So it, the chance wasn't that high that they will change their habits. But uh, nevertheless, 18 years is a long time. Right. Yeah. For this reason, I think the study is really interesting. It's a guideline, but it definitely doesn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. So if somebody, let's say you're somebody who doesn't have a scientific background whatsoever, but you're still interested in, you know, health and fitness and veganism, and you're scrolling around the internet and you find an article uh, that says something that you think would be really, really cool if it was true, but you don't know if it's true. What what should you be looking for to see if an article is actually based in anything or if someone just pulled it off the top of their head? First of, first of all, I would think, uh, I would look if the article cites references. If there are, like, names. If, if there's a statement, okay, scientists found out that this and this is good. Or if there's a general statement just, yeah, if you eat this, then uh, you will be healthy. Mm-hmm. Then after such statements that kind of are really, uh, you know, state something really important, there should be a reference to a scientific paper. Mm-hmm. This might be in just a small number and you find the real reference uh, under the article. Mm-hmm. And then you can actually Google for it and see what comes out. Or you can... There's actually something like a scientific Google, if you're really interested uh, in scientific research. So it's a Google Scholar, Mm -hmm. uh, and you can uh, search for a topic there, or you can go on PubMed. It's also like a searching tool for scientific research, and look up a paper there. Yeah, so the first step would be look up if somebody cites it. Sometimes if no references are given, then I try to... take keywords and put them into Google or Google Scholar and just uh, write uh, scientific reference or science or research or study mm-hmm. or something next to it and see if I will find a uh, reference to a scientific journal. Right. So let's say you find the scientific journal. For, for most people, when they find an abstract... I know that when I started reading abstracts, I was like, this is a different language. I don't even understand what they're saying at all. And I imagine, I mean, I took, I took plenty of science classes in college, but they're still pretty confusing sometimes. So somebody who hasn't done that is going to be like, I don't know what this is. Yeah, yeah. If, if, it's, if it's also for me, if it's not my field, uh, what like, uh, okay, I have a pretty specific field or all the scientists have a specific field. So when I look at papers outside my field, I really have to learn new things. Also often a new, I, I don't know, new words I haven't known up to then and I have to Google a lot. Um, yeah, so you have this abstract. Also the thing is often scientific papers, uh, you can't really accept them for free. So they aren't open source. 
Now, more and more open source papers appear, which is really good, so you can look into the original source. If there's an abstract, it just summarizes what the paper is about. And um, I think first, the first one or two sentences should explain why this research was performed, why is this important. Then it should describe what methods were used, and then results and the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, for methods, it would be interesting to see, depends on what you're looking for, it would be interesting to see uh, what population was examined. If it was in vitro study, it can mean that uh, just... Uh, Somebody has taken protein out of the cells and put it in, in a test tube and has done something with it. So the result from this study would really not represent what happens in a human. Mm-hmm. They might give a clue what to do next and what to examine, uh, for example, in a human or in a cell outside, like human cell in a petri dish, but they aren't really conclusive. Right, because so usually I don't look at in vitro studies just mm-hmm. if I don't find anything else. Then, of course, uh, there are animal studies. They don't represent what happens in humans as well. What happens in humans as well, but they are definitely a better clue than the in vitro studies. Mm-hmm. Then it is also important to look what populations were examined. For example, if somebody wants to look uh, about something about muscle growth or effect of protein on muscle protein synthesis, and it's a young individual, I wouldn't necessarily look at the study who examined elderly women. Or are they doing it on trained individuals or untrained individuals, you know? These things yeah, matter. Yeah, so that's also an important point uh, to consider, to know actually where you're at and uh, how can you compare yourself to the study population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another important thing I think is to see when the study was performed. If it's an old study, for example, lots of things for food combining studies. Yeah. They were performed 100 years ago, and now people still cite the studies and foundation for all this food combining series. But the studies were performed 100 years ago, also in test tubes, and with the scientific methods that are really, really bad compared to those we have now. So now scientists are much better also because of their analytical methods. Mm-hmm. I don't say that the scientists 100 years ago made bad job. No, no way. They just didn't have the tools we have now and they couldn't draw the conclusions we draw now. Mm-hmm. So we need to move on from this research yeah. and build upon it rather than just look at this 100-year-old study as the truth okay. about exactly. food combining. Also, it's not, not necessarily, I think 50 years old is already pretty old. 20 years is already old, yeah. actually. Because science moves on. Science is a kind of constant process. We discover new things. And also we um, have better technologies that are more sensitive and allow us to look deeper into all of these um, things that are going on in the human body and then maybe discover new things. And then the old theories we had, maybe build on, on them or just say, okay, maybe it's not as we saw before because we didn't have the tools we have now to find out what is more probable. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I think something that might have to do with it is, you know, who are paying for these studies? Who are funding these studies? And why do they want this information? Why do they keep putting it out there? I mean, it's it's important to know why these studies are being done, because usually those who can, fund to, those who can afford to fund it, typically they have an agenda. Yes, but uh, usually you won't find it's an abstract who funded the study. You have to look at the end of a scientific paper. Yes, lots of the studies are 
maybe founded by some kind of industries companies. I'm really skeptical about some fat burner studies who were founded by the company who sells fat burners, right. dietary supplements. Right. It's 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 often written there, but it's not that. To be honest, I haven't found that many studies who were founded by some kind of companies. Hmm. There are some, but not that many. Mm-hmm. Okay. And. Uh, well, if it's found, if it was founded by the government or uh, usually it's written there, then it's actually fine. Or some research council, then uh, it's not kind of a company that wants to sell something. What else to look for? Oh, may, may, okay, at the end, uh, of course, of the paper, you should look at the conclusions. Mm-hmm. Maybe last two sentences. Yeah. What was? Uh, what did they find out? Mm-hmm. If it's something was efficient or not, or to what extent? Also. Think about it rationally. Yeah. If, uh, yeah, like with the chili peppers, how much it actually, if there's like something like, oh, this, or fat burner, they enhanced uh, the fat burning effect by 1%. And then if we recalculate it to calories, and it's like, okay, that may be 10 calories, then, mm-hmm. you know, okay, yeah, they were better, but, you know, what does it mean in the real context? What does it mean in the real life? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That I can go and eat a chocolate bar now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe in a game of inches, it, it can play some small role, but it's not a reason to just fly off the handle and, and eat, you know, chocolate bars and think it's going to equal out. <laughs> yeah, so it's actually also a good point. Uh, how measurable is it? Mm-hmm. For example, if a study found out that uh, uh, the study group A gained more muscle, maybe like 2% more muscle or lost, I don't know, 5% more fat. And then if you look at the uh, you know total scale and then see, okay, maybe that I just, I don't know, 50 gram or 25 gram, uh, the scientists were able to measure it in the specialized lab with their techniques. But for me at home, I wouldn't be even able to measure it. Right. You just have to cross your fingers and hope that the study was right and it's working. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean. I've seen a lot in the vegan bodybuilding and nutrition group, which if you're not a part of it, it's a really, really, it's, it's the best vegan bodybuilding group that there is on Facebook if you're looking for like real solid information. So I highly recommend it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hear a lot of people, usually new people to the group come in and they offer their own anecdotal stories as evidence for a lot of different things. What do you think about that? Because I do think people's personal experiences are important, but are they evidence? They aren't evidence. They're definitely, I think we like we like it to look at other people and see somebody had success with it. And, you know, it somehow means, oh, maybe I should try it. Maybe I should work harder and then I will be successful as well. But, you know, all of us have different starting points, different genetics, different lifestyles. And often we don't know what actually works for oneself. Even if I see progress and change several different things at the same time, for example, like, my supplementation, my training program, and my diet. Then I can't really say, oh, I changed my diet and started eating uh, more carbs or and less fat or more fat and less carbs, mm-hmm. and this changed my body. There are maybe other factors that contributed to it. Maybe it was sunny outside and I had less stress, so my stress hormones were lower and uh, it uh, didn't uh, lead to the you know fat accumulation around my midsection. Right. There are so many different things that are to consider. Um, 
I think it's definitely good to hear about the experience of other people and try things out to find what works for you. But uh, anecdotal stories, you, you can't really prove that it's right. Also, you never know if the person tells the truth. That's, That's true. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Or well. even, I don't even want to say that the people are lying, but maybe something, people maybe don't track everything. So, and you never know what is actually, what stays in their memory. So if they, I don't know, told that they were eating this and this every day, maybe they ate something in addition or maybe less uh, of something or forgot to eat something. Mm-hmm. You, you, you never know. Yeah, it's very hard to, it's just very hard to keep track. You can't possibly keep track of all the factors in your life that could play a part in, you know, changes in strength or body composition or even body weight. So while I enjoy reading other people's stories about what worked for them and what didn't, and some of it is like, if they believe it worked for them, then that's enough. Then they, you know, that's good. Because it makes sense. You should never underestimate the uh, placebo effect. Right, Right. absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) If if you think you have, you know, someone would think he has a magic supplement that gives him the strength, and I know it's like complete nonsense. Right. But it doesn't harm the person. Exactly. It's like, okay, you know, go, go and eat it. If you think you have magic, we get magic powers, yeah. <laughs> Just because you think, you know, if you go to the gym and you're afraid to pick up the bar, you won't lift it. If right. you go and think you have magic powers, you will lift probably, you know, right. more weight than you think you're able to. So. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's really important. I like that. Moral of the story, find magic pills. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I see in the group a lot is people say, well, that's an N versus one argument. So it's bullshit. Um, can you explain to people what N, and I'm sorry, N equals one? I think, I'm not sure if I said that right the first time. Can you explain to people what N equals one means? <laughs> yeah, and anesthesia is a sample size. The sample size, for example, scientists examine. So, for example, if I take a group, uh, if I want to examine if a supplement is sufficient for uh, building muscle, losing fat, let's say, then I take maybe a group of 10 people that take the supplement, that's N10 positive group, and then it is also important to have a negative control. And that's also what is missing in anecdotal uh, stories, because you would never know what would happen to this person if it uh, didn't follow this diet, or parts of it at least. Uh, and then usually a, a good study has a placebo control that takes, for example, a pill that looks exactly the same but uh, contains, I don't know, sugar or starch or something that is uh, definitely not effective, it's not a supplement. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they, the scientists measure... Uh, the outcomes, how much strength each uh, person of each group uh, made, uh, and uh, then they can compare. Mm -hmm. So it is also really important that the people don't know if they're taking the supplement or the placebo, because then they have, again, the placebo effect. Also, in good studies, uh, scientists also don't know uh, that perform who gets the placebo and who gets the... uh, I didn't know that the scientists didn't know. I always thought the scientists knew who got the placebo. Some scientists don't know either. That's That's really cool. I had no idea. See, I learned something. That's fantastic. Um, And then a really, really, really huge one, especially in... Uh, within the vegan movement, and I, I think you know what I'm referring to here, correlation does not equal causation. Can you speak a little bit about that? 
Yeah, it was actually also what I um, mentioned with the protein topic. Just because somebody eats uh, a lot of protein and does and I don't get some kind of disease, it doesn't mean that it's because of the protein. Um, also, another uh, example is that the people who have um, a higher omega three fatty acids intake uh, have uh, lower chances to get depressed. And the question is, okay, should all of us take omega-3 supplements? But the people who are, whose diet is pretty rich in omega-3 are maybe people who are living around somewhere at the sea, for example, southern Europe. And at the same time, they have more sun than the people in northern Europe. And also, they actually, they're pretty much more relaxed. So the, the question is here, is it, you know, also, it correlates to their fish intake or omega-3 intake that they have lower chances to get, uh, to get depressed. At the same time, they may be not that depressed because the sun is shining and they have good mood all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So just because, it's, just because initially when you look at something, it seems like A is causing B doesn't necessarily mean that A is causing B. Yeah. You have to step back and look at the whole picture. And I think the biggest example of this and I'm going to get so much shit for even saying this, um, is probably the China study, mm -hmm. which is like the holy Bible of veganism. And that is probably the biggest misinterpretation of correlation equaling causation that's been really, really hard to deal with within the community. And I know that it gets brought up a lot in the group as well. I think it's almost impossible to really prove anything, especially when it comes to diet. Sure, I can prove in a scientific study that the toxin is toxic. I can give somebody a toxin and uh, I know the person dies and I have proven that it's toxic. But if it comes to such complex things like nutrition and lifestyle and everything, then you can't really prove anything. That are just the things that suggest and there were like lots of different things that happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. For this reason, yeah. And I think often... Uh, also, the study was performed some time ago, so it's not such a recent study. Mm -hmm. And also, some of the articles I read, they cite old, um, old papers, old sources, and uh, where the scientists didn't have such methods we have now. Mm -hmm. it's very yes, yes the general protein, in general, the protein topic, uh, I looked really into it, and I couldn't find any evidence that really convinced me that it's Protein is added macronutrients that causes all the trouble. Mm -hmm. in, uh, okay, for in some cases, of course, I have to say that um, for cancer, some cancer types are methionine dependent, so they're dependent on one of one amino acid mm -hmm. that is higher abundant in animal protein sources and plant uh, protein sources. Methionine, but, you said, right? Yeah. Methionine, you yeah, said. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so in I know for some people who have this cancer type, definitely I wouldn't recommend a high protein diet and definitely not high in animal protein. But uh, for in general, for a healthy individual, uh, I don't think it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Also, an interesting thing is uh, that especially people in the fitness community, in the vegan community, who want to build muscle. They try to optimize everything to get this muscle growing response. But at the same time, if, we, if our body is in this anabolic state, it might be something that can cause cancer to grow. 
Right. If it can cause your muscles to grow, it could presumably cause cancer cells to grow as well. Yes. And now in the vegan community, all the people say, okay, I want eliminate this and this from my diet because it rises HA1 levels. Right. Because it can cause cancer. Then, you know, it is also important to consider, yes, it's, uh, can, you know, if someone has cancer already, it can promote cancer growth. But our, all of us have mutations in the DNA, but our bodies have a mechanism to fix it. Mm-hmm. It's just when it gets out of, contr- out of control and doesn't get fixed, but, uh, then cancer is formed. Um, yeah, but for example, HA1 uh, was told to, it, it can promote cancer growth. However, it is also important for muscle growth. And actually, everything that is produced by our body has a certain function. There was a hypothesis that um, actually vegan can have the higher danger of stroke because actually IG-1 protects against stroke. Interesting. So in all the populations that have a higher percentage of plants in their diet, I think in Asia they have a higher stroke risk. And it also, again, it's a theory. Nothing is mm-hmm. proven. Right. But it might be because they are IGF-1 level is too low. Mm-hmm. So if you read on the internet, oh, IGF-1 is bad, IGF-1 promotes cancer, mm-hmm. then you should always remember that there's a reason why it is in our body. So it has important function also for our cardiovascular health. It's bad if there's too much of it, you know, like everything. If everything gets out of the balance, that's bad. Mm-hmm. But if it's within a healthy, normal range, uh, it has its beneficial functions. Right, and I, I think that's. I think it's just really, really important. We see a lot of scare tactics in veganism about you know specific nutrients or specific foods being like the devil, and. You just have to take the whole picture into consideration, which to me, I think is really the takeaway from everything is you have to use your common sense, um, think about what this really means to you and try to step back and see the bigger picture as much as you can. Because usually if something sounds like amazing, like a miracle, or if something sounds like if you eat it, it's going to kill you right now, that's usually in my experience, not the truth. The the truth, and I'm using quotation marks because I know you can't see me because I don't think there is really a truth. Uh, the truth is that it, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Somewhere yeah. in the moderate. Yeah, I completely agree, yes. And also I think what is like really, let's say, dangerous about all these gurus and pseudoscience is that you know, people start being afraid of something. Mm-hmm. They start being afraid, okay, if I am... If I eat something like this, then I will die in five years. But, you know, what, what is worse than being afraid? Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. the people can't really live and enjoy their life. Also, it's, it makes often really difficult to make decisions when you go shopping. If you kind of know too much or if you heard too much that is kind of half true. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, this product contains too much sugar. This product contains too much fats. This one has this additive that has been shown to be somehow harmful. This has this artificial sweetener. Oh, my God, what shall I do? Then right. you're standing in a supermarket with five products and a disparate, oh, I don't know what to buy. 
Yeah. And actually, that's what our two podcasts ago, we talked about that. We talked about, um, you know, eating disorders and how a lot of people after they come to veganism, they start reading all these articles and they want to learn as much as they can. And that's awesome. But eventually you get what I call analysis paralysis, which is, <laughs> you know, you're thinking about something so much that you it causes you so much anxiety that you can't do anything. And, that's and you're just obsessed. Worse than what, you know, any anything that you're taking in is how much you're worrying about what you're eating. You know, everything... Like, oh, like, what percentage of this is going to kill me that I eat over time? Everything is toxic. And then you have people that start to become obsessed with cleansing and detoxing every other day. I mean, people are on, a like, some sort of a fast or a cleanse because they have to, you know, quote-unquote detox because everything has toxins. And it's like, to what level is that that become, you know, very unhealthy? Yeah. I mean, everything is toxic. Everything is toxic. Yeah, actually, there was a really interesting paper about it that showed that there's actually no evidence that all these detoxes work, mm-hmm. especially also for weight loss and so on. Lots of them can be actually dangerous, this mm-hmm. detox product that gets uh, sold. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if someone isn't uh, doesn't have toxins in the body, like, I don't know, if it isn't heavily, doesn't consume too al- alcohol all the time or isn't drug addict, there, there is no need to de- detox. Or just food poisoning or mercury poisoning or something like that. If you're not at that level, then maybe not worry about that so much. If you have a healthy, functioning liver and kidneys... Your body is detoxing. Yeah. 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 Our, our, our bodies were like the enzymes in our bodies evolved to detox. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't. They they don't need any help. Yeah, that, that's the same for digestion. We we don't need if someone doesn't have a I don't know disease or I don't know some health kind of health problems. We don't really need uh, help to digest food. Mm-hmm. I refer here also to raw food. What uh, you know, you see all the time. Oh, contains raw enzymes. Is raw, raw, raw. But why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, the point is, the only reason I can see to eat raw food is maybe because uh, some vitamins are heat sensitive if right. you cook them. Mm-hmm. But if you eat a mixture of raw and cooked food, it shouldn't be a problem, right? Because some nutrients become more bioavailable upon cooking. Right, like tomatoes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you, you get you get a healthy balance. Mm-hmm. Then um, uh, okay, raw food is more filling. So fibers are the people who have maybe problems with overeating. If they eat some raw veggies on the side, then kind of less food will fit into their stomach. Let's mm-hmm. say yeah, or they are, they spend more time chewing, and uh, at the end they eat less. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, then it can make sense. But in general, consuming everything just raw. It doesn't make sense. No. And also, the people say, okay, uh, you know, I don't want, uh, every, if you cook your processed food, but also raw smoothies, mm-hmm. you know, if you smoothie lots and, and lots of greens. Too high and, yeah, yeah. Like if you blend all of it, w- what is it? Isn't it processing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't De- dehydrating is processing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The whole, also, premise of, um, the whole premise of raw foods that, you know, by heating foods up past a certain temperature that you're destroying enzymes and the enzymes are what help you digest the food. I feel like that's the whole... Right, that's the whole premise. That, well, and everything. the nutrients, they think you don't destroy the nutrients. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so, uh, so our, bo- our bodies have their own enzymes. Also, I, you know, a question I kind of ask myself then all the time is, okay, if the plants help us to digest themselves, 
why it doesn't plan it just itself all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's like it's not like I have just you know scientific proof for, mm-hmm. but it's uh, just an idea. I have. Right. It's when that common sense comes in. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, our enzymes are specialized to break down the type of nutrients our body needs. Our body has to digest. Mm-hmm. So, and it is really specialized for it. And even if there are some enzymes uh, in plants that might have the same uh, function, uh, they won't be as efficient as our own enzymes. Right. And a lot of them get destroyed on the way to your stomach anyway. Hydrochloric acid. So, as soon as you start digesting. So, yeah, we're, we're going off on a raw food tangent. I knew it was going to happen one day on this podcast. We can't help it. But <laughs> um, all right. So if you could give people one piece of advice when finding literature that they're unsure about online, what would it be? Um, think. Think, yeah. You know, it's, it is really important critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Also, everything, you know, even if I have a certain opinion, I try to ask critical questions. Or even if you maybe aren't expert in this particular field, you can even Google for it. If you put in the topic and then the criticism next to it, maybe some you know pages will come up that uh, kind of ask critical questions about it. That's really really important, and we'll put some um, some of these tips into the show notes as well, like what websites we like to use to f- search for studies or the. T- terms that you put into Google to find something that's actually helpful. So we'll put that in there for you guys. In the meantime, Anastasia, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? So on Facebook, I have a Facebook like page, Anastasia Vegan Warrior. Then I have a blog, it's Science Strengths, written everything in one, dot wordpress.com. Okay. And I have a YouTube channel, it's called Science Strengths as well. Yeah, and she does a really, really good job with the YouTube videos. If you get a chance to check those out, uh, Anastasia is very, very good at explaining very complicated things in a way that makes sense to uh, pretty much anyone. So I think that's really cool. If anyone has a question, you know, you can just message me on Facebook and I can try to answer it. Mm-hmm. And if you, you're also an admin of the Vegan Bodybuilding and Nutrition Group. Um, yes. So if you're not a part of that, you should join it, I think. Yeah, you, you should join it. And especially if uh, you want really me to answer something, then just tag me in the post. Because sometimes I just oversee, you know, questions people ask if I'm not tagged. Right. Yeah, that the same thing happens to us all the time. It, Facebook can be very overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> but all right, Anastasia. Well, we really appreciate having you on the show. And hopefully we can have you back again some other time and dig more into this. Because like I said, I do feel like I could talk about this sort of stuff all day. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Anastasia. And today in our product segment, we are going to be talking about a new cool find that Giacomo saw in New York City. And it is called Wink Ice Cream. And I, I was skeptical at first about Wink Ice Cream because, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the packaging and it's, and you could get a whole pint of ice cream for uh, 100 calories, you know, only 16 grams of carbohydrates and 8 grams of protein and no fat. And there's just, 
I'm like, how, how is this even possible? So I started to look into it. And of course, I, I had to try it. I mean, I, I love ice cream. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really good. Um, I mean, when you compare it to something like, say, So Delicious ice cream, which is really rich and creamy, I mean, no, it's not going to be the same. But even on its own, I mean, if you're looking to to fit in ice cream into your, your meal program and you, you only have so many macros to work with, I mean, this stuff is just awesome. For example, I mean, I've, I've been on contest prep now for going on four weeks. And my, you know, my goal is to have a little treat every day just to keep me sane. And my treat is ice cream. So I've had ice cream four weeks in a row. Without this stuff, I don't know that I would be able to do it. Sometimes I have it on my own when I don't have much room to play with. And other times, which is a neat little trick, I mix it in with other ice cream. So I get a whole lot more volume without adding a whole bunch of uh, extra calories to the, to the ice cream, which is, is pretty cool. And, you know, so the, the base of it is pea protein. And um, let's see, it's sugar-free, gluten-free, fat-free, soy-free. So if you have any allergies, I mean, this stuff is totally legit. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Sweetened with um, agave. And there are a lot of flavors, too. There's cake batter, which is my absolute favorite. I haven't tried the cocoa dough, but I have a feeling it's going to be pretty good. There's also cocoa mint, cinnamon bun, which I also really love, iced latte, vanilla bean, for example. There's a couple more flavors, too. And I, I can't speak highly enough of this. Uh, it's it's kind of like the, the vegan Arctic Zero, if you will. Yeah, that's what it looks like. I see a lot of people who aren't vegan post, posting about Arctic Zero ice cream, which is like super low-calorie, low-carb ice cream, I guess. Obviously, I've never had it. Um, but this seems like it would be comparable to that. Mm -hmm. That's actually how I found it. You know, Danny was talking about this Arctic Zero stuff and the, the idea behind it and, and how it, you know, it was a good idea. And I said, I wonder if they make something like that that's vegan. So I started searching around. And of course, lo and behold, there it is. And uh, yeah, like I said, I can't speak highly enough about this stuff. I, I just ordered eight pints <laughs> again to re-up. And I'll be having it right through my prep and, and beyond. Where are you ordering it from? As far as I know, there, there aren't too many stores locally that carry it. I, I did find it in a, a local co-op in Brooklyn. But uh, for now, I, I order it online. You can order directly from the company. And their website is winkfrozendesserts.com. Okay, and now we're going to take some questions and see if we can give you some answers. Our first question comes from Doug. He emailed this in. It says, I just listened to the podcast on eating disorders, and it made me think about something similar that very few, if any, vegan podcasts ever talk about. The problem is the challenges that men with very high metabolisms face when being vegan. Before I was vegan, I weighed anywhere from 210 to 220, and I was consuming about 3,000 calories a day. Since becoming vegan, I am now 190 to 200 and I'm consuming 3,500 to 4,000 calories a day. The reason for this, I have no idea. Um, and then he goes on to say that he's self-diagnosed with bigorexia, which um, if you don't know, it's, it's not technically a real thing, but it's basically um, like when you think you're never big enough. This happens to a lot of guys who get into the gym the same way a lot of girls never think they're thin enough. A lot of guys never think they're big enough or muscular enough. Um, and honestly, I'm not 
I'm sure that's why almost 80% of vegans are women, because no one is really targeting on promoting the vegan lifestyle or making products for the stereotypical male that just wants to get bigger. Hmm. Bigorexia, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that is probably perpetuated by steroid, steroid use. You know, guys just becoming superhuman from performance enhancing drugs and of course those are the ones that we see in the magazines and then on top of that those photos are photoshopped i i can totally see why why that that would happen and i i feel like we've all been there at one point or another but anyhow to to answer your question there uh you know i i see what you're saying i mean you're you know you're eating more and you weigh less and you can't, you know, you're not putting on the muscle that you want to, or you want, you want, you want to get back up to that, that higher weight that you were before you went vegan. And a, a couple things come to mind. The, the first is, uh, plant-based, uh, meals tend to be more higher in fiber. And I mean, there's just, uh, just a hypothesis, but the, you know, f- meals that are higher in fiber, well, one, they tend to be more filling. So even when you want to eat more than 4,000 calories, you, you can't because you're full. And then two, the, you know, some of it gets broken down into fatty acids, but a lot of it just passes through you. And, you know, if you're not using that food, well, then it's not fuel and you can't put it to work to build muscle. The other thing is, you know, and this is this is really going to be a shot in the dark because I, you know, I don't know anything about your lifestyle or outside of, you know, anything outside of basically how how you're eating, and and so it can be tough to figure things out. I mean, if you're the type of person that that always wants to get bigger and is working out hard, chances are you're probably very active, and maybe now that you're eating more it's because your your activity level has has gone up and you have to compensate for that and that that would have been the same whether you were vegan or not basically if you're more active you need to eat more and especially if you if you have built muscle and your lean body mass has increased lean body mass is a lot more metabolically active than fat mass so even though you weigh less you may have more muscle than you did before and that may mean that you have to eat more yep so you know you can get to that get to that point where you're building the muscle, which is great. And then to maintain the muscle, you have to wind up eating even more. And that, that can be a challenge that we all face. I, I completely understand. And ha- f- finding a, a balance with how much fiber you're getting in can really yeah. help with that. I think that's, I think that's a huge, huge thing that a lot of vegans don't even remotely think about because we're bombarded every single day with make sure you get your fiber, make sure you get your fiber. And the fact that I don't know any vegan who's not getting their fiber, you don't even have to try. If you're vegan, you don't even have to try to hit your fiber goals. Basically, I can't even think of what I would have to eat to be full in a day and not hit my fiber goals. So I would suggest tracking your fiber, seeing what it is. And if it's high, and I mean, I guess if you're in the 3,000 to 4,000 calorie range, I mean, if it's over 70 grams or so, I would say that's pretty high. And I would try to scale that back because those, the calories that are not from fiber are the ones you're actually going to be able to utilize for energy more efficiently. And then, you know, something I always recommend to guys particularly with very high metabolisms like ectomorphs, I suggest eating super, super calorie dense foods because you're going to get more calories, energy for a smaller amount of food. So you'll be able to eat more of it. So things like grains are really, really good. Uh, Peanut butter, nuts of any kind. So, so, so good. 
Um, and you can just throw it in a smoothie. As opposed know? to a giant salad, which, you know, maybe only has 500 calories, but it's a, you know, a big bowl that you can't eat much more after that. So I understand why you wouldn't want to eat. Yeah. 500 than, calories of nuts is just like a couple handfuls. Yeah, it's nothing. To mix some of that in, you'll be able to eat more easily. Yeah. So you, the, the answer may just be that you need to eat more than you're eating, which I'm sure you don't want to hear. Um, but if you're strategic about it and find the right foods, it doesn't have to be a nightmare. And also cutting down your fiber of those calories will kind of be increasing how much you're eating just by doing that. Yeah, it'll help a lot. And our next question comes in through email from Stephanie Rice. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, guys. I was thinking about some stuffs as a response to the clean eating podcast. My knowledge of clean eating first came as reducing sugar intake with the idea that fat doesn't make you fat, sugar makes you fat. So the idea is to follow the rule. Don't eat foods with more than seven grams of sugar per serving. This doesn't include whole fruits. With the IIFYM methodology and bodybuilding or general fat loss, is limiting sugar a part of the plan? Okay, so I totally understand where you're coming from. I think most of us, when we first heard about clean eating, that was one of the big parts of it. You know, it was all like, watch your sugars, but eat healthy fats. Fats are good for you. And I think that for the majority of, like, your average American, I think watching your sugar is probably a smart thing to do because it's so easy to go over. But the fact of the matter is that sugar doesn't make you fat. Fat doesn't make you fat. Carbs don't make you fat. Eating over your caloric maintenance is what makes you fat. And I guess I shouldn't say that. Eating over your caloric maintenance makes you gain weight. Um, Whether that's muscle or fat really depends on your training program and stuff like that. So with the IIFYM methodology, no, you don't really have to watch your sugar per se, unless you have, you know, a pre-existing condition like diabetes or pre-diabetes or something like that. But if you're doing it correctly, and I know that there are people out there who literally do just eat junk all day and call it IIFYM, but for the most part, I prefer to call it flexible dieting because I just like the sound of it better. Um, you could technically eat you know, sugar all day long and you could still reach your physical outward aesthetic goals by doing that as long as you stay within your macronutrient requirements. I mean, what your insides look like at that point may be a completely different story. So I do suggest still, you know, being sure to hit your fiber. And that's kind of, that's kind of the thing for most people who are not vegan, that can be a little bit tough, which is crazy to think about that people have a hard time hitting their fiber goals, because I have a hard time keeping mine down. (laughs) Um, But if you're getting enough fiber, then that is going to slow down the digestion of sugar so much, especially if you're eating them together at the same meal, that you're not going to have these crazy insulin spikes or anything like that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, just making sure that you eat within your caloric and macronutrient uh, goals is going to, I mean, you're not going to get fat by doing that. However, I also like to say don't eat like an asshole and, you know, be sure that you're, I mean, eat your vegetables, like always eat vegetables. I I always like people eating vegetables. And if you're eating your vegetables, it really doesn't matter if, you know, if you can fit a a cookie into the end of your day every single day, nothing bad is going to happen to you. You're not going to get fat as long as you're within your goals. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you, you want a diet that is nutrient dense. I mean, vitamins, minerals, 
and antioxidants, you're, you're going to get more from food than you are going from, say, taking a multivitamin in the morning. And I think it's pretty important to not discount that, to, to get, get your green leafies in, get your fruits in, and, and be flexible. You know, when you have a craving, honor that. If you want to treat, honor that. But don't eat junk food all day. I mean, not that you can't reach your goals that way. but Right. Well, that's the thing. It's better. like, in theory, yes, you can still, you can eat sugar for all of your, you can eat table sugar for all of your carbohydrates and still reach your physical goals. Um, is that smart? No, but in theory, it would still work. Um, so yeah, there are people who are going to try to do stuff like that and just eat pop tarts and crap like that all day. Um, but for the most part, for people that have some common sense, it's more like you work something like that in when you want it or when you have the space for it or a special occasion or what have you. And then you still eat a lot of whole and nutrient dense foods. And this question is a two-parter, and the second part is, with the IIFYM methodology and bodybuilding, specifically the cutting contest prep stage, are there specific macros and timing for each meal? Or does a flexible eating dieting include meal times and macro composition? So this is a really good question, actually, and I think that there is still, a, there's, a, there's a lot of importance behind meal timing so to speak. And part of it is, okay, let's say your protein goal for the day is 120 grams of protein. That's your, like, you've done your math and figured it out. And your protein goal is 120 for the day. Like you should not be eating that all in one sitting. And there's a few reasons for that. One, can you imagine how much that would like hurt your stomach <laughs> if, if you ate 120 grams of protein in a sitting? But also, you are your body is actually able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis about four to five times a day. Uh, some studies have shown as little as three, but some have shown as many as five. So I think it's a good idea to split your protein up into that many meals so that you can stimulate the muscle protein synthesis and muscle, muscle growth as often as possible to optimize your goals. And yes, it is satiating. Um, I do think it's a good idea to time a lot of carbs around your workouts. Just seems to make sense to me personally, because I, I feel like I run better that way. And you know, a lot of people who are pretty intense athletes do run better with carbs around their workout. It makes sense. It's immediate energy. It replenishes your glycogen, et cetera, et cetera. But however, there is some flexibility within that. If you're a person who is super, super busy and you know, the idea of eating five or six meals a day is like, that's not going to happen for me. There's no, you don't have to eat six small meals a day to like stimulate your metabolism, which was, you know, what was thought for a really long time. Uh, it's recently been proven to not be true. So I like to say have a minimum of three meals up to as many meals as you want, really making sure you're getting at least 20 grams of protein and however many meals you have just to take advantage of that muscle protein synthesis. As far as fat loss goes, specifically in the bodybuilding world, this is actually going to sound kind of crazy, but I found it to be true. If you can have fewer but larger meals, you're going to feel better because you're actually going to get to sit down and eat a meal that doesn't leave you feeling hungry 10 minutes later, which, you know, I know you've done this before, Steph. Uh, so, you know, when you're having six meals that are like itty bitty and just miserable, it's like, why am I even bothering never feel full. eating it's this? Sometimes, because I used to do that, I, I find myself falling into the habit saying, I have this much food left, I'm going to split up into two meals, because I have five hours left in the day, and I don't want to feel full. And then I eat, I eat half of my food, and I'm like, 
you know, I just don't feel quite full because I'm dieting down right now. Well, let, let me go ahead and and, uh, and eat the rest of my food. And, and I have a nice big filling meal and lo and behold, I'm okay for the rest of the, the evening. Yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to if you're going from, say, six meals to three meals or something like that. But if that works better for your lifestyle, it's not going to affect your goals negatively in any way. Uh, conversely, people who are looking to build muscle, like, you know, the guy we talked to earlier, the ectomorph guy, um, you know, if he's eating 4,000 and upward calories a day, getting that in three meals is going to suck. Though it's going to be three huge meals. So it may be beneficial for him and the way he feels throughout the day to break that up into smaller meals just for his own sanity. So he's not, you know, shoving 1,500 calories in his mouth multiple times a day. That would be brutal. So yes, there is flexibility in the meal timing and meal frequency and things like that. There are some guidelines that I like to stick to um, and that I like to have my clients stick to, but they're not hard and fast rules. They can, you know, shift around a person's lifestyle a little bit without having to sacrifice the end result. So hopefully that, that answers you a little bit. <laughs> and you were going to say that. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, guys, for tuning into our 12th episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. If you've been listening to the show for a while and you like it, if you could leave us a review or a comment on iTunes, it'll just help us get out there a little bit more, and hopefully we can start spreading this message of the fact that vegans can be strong and build muscle and be fit and active without eating animals. So anything you could do like that would be really, really helpful. Um, and if you do leave a comment or rate us on iTunes. Take a snapshot of it on your phone and either tag us on Instagram or you can send it to our Facebook page at Vegan Proteins and we will send you a little care package. So if you could do that, we would really, really appreciate it. And that concludes episode 12 of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have any questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Vegan Proteins or find us at veganproteins.com. My name is Danny. And I'm Giacomo. And we will talk to you in two weeks.